Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I am so impressed with the mission of Prosperity Now, website prosperitynow.org, and their research and work on income inequality and the innovation and advocacy to unstack the stacked deck that has been decimating the U.S. middle class. I've spoken to a couple people affiliated with Prosperity Now over the past couple years, but my guest today for Spirit in Action is Robert Friedman, founder 40 years ago of the organization currently called Prosperity Now and the author of a new book, A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone. Robert's work has been searching, scientific, creative, and passionate, bringing people together across the political spectrum for a better, stronger, and fairer country. Robert Friedman joins us by phone from the Bay Area in California. Bob, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me on. Reading your book, A Few Thousand Dollars, really helped to deepen my understanding. It actually gave me justification for ideas I've had. I didn't know the hard statistics behind them, so I'm really appreciative of that. I did interview Chuck Collins a couple years back about his book, Born on Third Base, and I think he's kind of on your level, and he's worked with you and worked with the same issues that you're concerned with. He says he was born on third base. What base were you born on? Probably at least third. (laughs) I'm a beneficiary of and relative of the Levi Strauss family. I inherited money. I could, like Chuck, choose what I wanted to do with my life. I figured part of that was having other people to share the chances that I had had. I also, I should say, I inherited a great family. And, you know, my parents, the extended family, was at least as great an inheritance as any financial inheritance. The Occupy movement made a point of saying, you know, I'm part of the 99%. And you aren't. You're part of the 1%, right? Correct. One of the things that a guest I had along the way pointed out why he couldn't support the Occupy movement in its stated goals was it's not the 99% against the 1%, or at least it's not in general that. We can be allies, whatever our income How did you become an ally of a different view rather than just prosperity for me? It's a good question. I suppose, you know, it's the values of my family, of this country, (laughs) probably, you know, of religion as well. And just as human belief, I'm convinced that if everyone doesn't have opportunity, then I don't really either. That, you know, we're kind of born codependent (laughs) on each other. And that, you know, no one can be free as long as everyone is not. At a fairly young age, I mean, back in 1979 is when you started the Corporation for Enterprise Development, now called Prosperity Now. You started it way back then. How old were you at the time and what led to the creation of this research enterprise? So I was 30 when I started it. And I had spent some time trying to figure out what was meaningful to do with my life. I 
went to law school without the intent of ever practicing, but to understand systems and structures and rules. I realized that I was more in love with justice than I was with law, and those things (laughs) were not always the same. I had an experience, actually. I went to Atlanta, where I had no relatives, to find myself, and I uh, went to look at an apartment in Decatur and rode in on a a bus to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was kind of me and 30 African-American maids uh, resting between jobs. And as luck would have it, I had to go to the bank when we got downtown, and three of the women from the bus were going to the bank as well and lined up behind one another, and I lined up behind them and watched as each in succession presented the teller with a wrinkled envelope full of change and a few stray dollar bills. And so when I got to the front of the line, I said, so what was that? And the teller said, oh, that's our Christmas club. They're saving to buy presents for their kids at Christmas. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. What interest rate do you pay? And the teller said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a service we provide. We don't provide interest. (laughs) And I was outraged. I thought, you know, why should my dollar be worth more than theirs? And then more fundamentally, why don't we have a financial and economic system that treats low-income people as well as upper-income people? I understand now more about information and transaction costs and the cost of small accounts, but I still believe that we would all be better off if we had a financial and economic system that welcomed the contributions and respected the talents of all people. So I think you were seeing right there one of the ways in which the system is fixed, that it favors those who've got lots of dough, and it disfavors, it disables, it prevents the advancement of people of lesser income, lesser wealth. Is that a fair way to state it? Yes. So, you know, I started Prosperity Now 40 years ago to really invest in the talents, dreams, works of common people. And I would have to say my basic conclusion after 40 years of this work in economic opportunity and economic development is that given a reasonable opportunity, which often means as little as a few thousand dollars and some peer support, low income, even very poor people will save, start businesses, create jobs, buy and keep homes, go to college, create economic futures for themselves, their families, the communities, the country. I really believe that economic development comes bottom up through those investments in, you know, the common genius, uh, and that that's really the genius of this country. And if everybody has a chance to play, I really think we'll all do better. And I believe that too, but you've gone a step further than anything I've ever done in my life. Robert Friedman and your other associates, you've all worked together, Bob, to document what works and what doesn't work, what helps even out the playing field, I guess I'd say. What was your first big research program and what did you learn from it? Really, during the first decade, I focused on the question of whether low-income people, but specifically women on welfare, might choose to start businesses and create jobs for themselves and we launched the self-employment investment demonstration, which proved, in fact, that given that option, welfare moms, 
would start businesses and dramatically reduced their dependence and increased their assets and income. It was the beginning of proving a high expectation strategy for low-income people. I think sometimes left and right alike have low expectations of low-income people. The right wing, I think, is often, depending whether they write or speak, libelous or slanderous of the capabilities of low-income people. But I think that the left, too, has been guilty of creating the safety net and social service programs, which I applaud. But we have to recognize that they mitigate the impacts of poverty. They don't really help people escape. And so what I've focused on and what Prosperity Now has focused on over the last 40 years and our many partners is that, you know, given a chance, low-income people do amazing things and can be not just beneficiaries, trainees, employees, but entrepreneurs, homeowners, college material, skilled workers, creators of wealth. And folks should know that this is documented, the research, the specific implementations that work is documented in the book, A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone. So in that first research, what were the results that showed you that impoverished people, people who are really struggling on one end, can launch businesses, can make that transition towards prosperity? Well, in that and in subsequent demonstrations, which the word research makes it sound a little bloodless, what I've always believed is the solutions come bottom-up and often, you know, within families and what families have been doing in communities for generations. Too often we, we look at the liabilities of people, not at their strengths. I believe people move forward by building on their assets, on their strengths. I think all of us have our limitations, but again, we build by doing the things we're proud of and good at, and then along the way, hopefully, <laughs> recognize our weaknesses and repair those. But we've done demonstrations now on the ground in partnership with communities that know their very different constituencies well, urban, rural, Indian country, the South, Midwest, uh, kind of all areas of the country. And we have, with rigorous evaluation, often random assignment control group experimentation, documented, again, that given a reasonable opportunity, low-income, even very poor people will save, start businesses, buy and keep homes, go to college, create futures. And through that work with literally thousands of people, we've then sparked community practice, public policy, private market interventions, wherein literally hundreds of thousands, if not now millions, of adults and kids have been able to move forward economically and begun to build, you know, really the latter. I found the book really interesting and very readable, by the way, and I think that's significant, Bob. Most people who write books about economic systems tend to go into lingo a little bit too much and a little bit too statistical. And you have lots of statistics in here, but they're never deadening. They illustrate the ideas rather than going off into this, as you said, bloodless world, if you will. <laughs> Thank you. I do think when we talk economic, economic development, economic opportunity, certainly when you start talking tax system, <laughs> 
people tend to turn off and think it's too complicated, too dull, maybe right on that. <laughs> um, but I think the basic principles here are things people can and want to understand and know from their own lives. In that first study that you did, you were referring particularly to I'm maybe single mother households a lot mm-hmm. where they start businesses. The results that you were able to measure of the program did not say 100% of the people are going to be dramatic successes. But against all expectations, a very significant percentage of them saved money, invested in, in a way that it was almost unbelievable what they did. Yes. So again, what we did was the self-employment investment demonstration occurred in five states. Minnesota, Maryland, Mississippi, Michigan, and Iowa. The states agreed to relax the penalties, the asset limits that face welfare recipients. So really, if you exceed in those states at the time $2,000 in assets of any kind, you became ineligible for benefits, and any income you earned was deducted dollar for dollar or more so from the benefits. We convinced those five states to relax those penalties. But I think your listeners need to understand that in every welfare code in the country, federal and state, we penalize people for doing exactly the things they need to do to move forward economically, learn, earn, save, invest. And I think that makes no sense. So anyway, we got the five states to waive those rules. We worked with community groups in each state. And what we found was nearly a third of the welfare recipients who were invited to participate if they wanted to start a business chose to. Four of five businesses were still operating two and a half years after starting. Business income increased sixfold. Welfare dependency fell by two-thirds. Business owners nearly doubled their assets. Every business in general created one and a half jobs. And 69% of the entrepreneurs said they would not have started their businesses had the welfare rules remained the same. So, in other words, the system was enforcing and pushing welfare dependence at the same time that it was criticizing people for being welfare dependent. Exactly. (laughs) There's a no-win situation if you don't happen to start out with money in your pockets when you come out of, of the chute, you know. Exactly. And and then, I mean, the other thing we did is we were willing to extend business loans, low amounts, you know, generally under $5,000. This was the beginning of the microenterprise or movement in this country. And it was most often women as well as people of color who were enrolled and who also were the social entrepreneurs behind these programs. So you said approximately one-third of the people in the program, they succeeded quite well, I guess you'd say. Well, they opted to start, and then those, you know, business is not for everyone. (laughs) And really, (laughs) this became the issue for me at the end of the 80s when the demonstration concluded was, okay, you know, self-employment, business creation, entrepreneurship is an option that's viable for some percentage of low-income, very poor people. And there's evidence that 
actually the propensity for entrepreneurship is higher among low-income people out of necessity, if not opportunity. The Family Independence Initiative works with families, sees that the entrepreneurship rate among the poor families they deal with is much higher than among the population as a whole. But it's not for everybody. So what are the ways forward economically for most families? Well, I think it is business startup. It's also home ownership. That's where most Americans build their wealth. It's also education. College education can mean an additional million dollars in earnings over the course of a lifespan. Assistive technology, citizenship (laughs) might be other high return assets, but they're not that many paths forward. The point I was headed toward was, and you talked about the blindnesses from the right and from the left-wing politics, that right-leaning people tend to demean the kind of work that poor people do. And on the left, there can be a permissiveness or denial of uh, holding people responsibility for their own improvement. I think that's the way that you were speaking, and uh, you should correct me if I'm wrong. And if that is true, there are corrections on both sides that need to be made. You can't just accept a right-wing plan or a left-wing plan. Yeah, I mean, I I often say, you know, on a good day, I can attract across the political spectrum, and on a bad day, I can repel across it. (laughs) That's talent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, but I think we need to recognize, trust, invest in the capacity of low-income people, not just treat them as beneficiaries, trainees, employees. I mean, they are, and I think this is what 40 years of work, of rigorous exploration has proven, that, again, given respect and investment, they will create the future. And we need to have those high expectations. I argue in the book, you know, I distinguish between present money, past money, future money. Present money is, you know, today's income to pay today's bills. Past money, a good percentage of the population is owing money. So some of current income is going to pay last month's or last year's bills. All of these, I think, come with psychological dimensions as well as financial dimensions. I think if you're in debt, you tend not to be thinking highly of yourself. You're not thinking ahead the way to get out of the current situation or to better your life. And that's why I think everybody needs future money, a nest egg that buffers you from the everyday accidents and illnesses that otherwise become crises, that invites you to imagine a future better than the present and confers, you know, a reason to plan and prepare for that future and an ability to invest in yourself and your kids when only you believe. I think wealth is too important to be left just to the wealthy. (laughs) Um, I think looking back at 40 years of rigorous experimentation, what we found is that as little as a few thousand dollars can be transforming in the hands and minds of aspiring people. And again, that's the name of the book, A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone. Robert Friedman is with us here today for Spirit in Action. I learned more about this in the book than I'd known before, Bob. I'd like you to talk about the way that the tax incentive system is structured against the prosperity for everyone. 
Great. I'm glad you raised that. So I think what we need to realize is at the federal level alone, we are spending in excess of $700 billion, that's with a B, dollars a year to build family wealth. The home mortgage interest deduction, preferential capital gains rates, pension fund exclusions, 529 college savings programs. That $700 billion is on the order of what we spend on defense each year. It averages out to $2,200 for every man, woman, child in the country, but it's not distributed that way because we use usually uh, tax deductions and exclusions. The bulk of the benefits go to the very wealthiest. Essentially, the system rewards the rich, misses the middle, and penalizes the poor. It's actually an annual investment in wealth inequality so that the very richest Americans, people making over a million dollars a year, the top 0.1%, get an average annual subsidy from just these, this subset of tax incentives or loopholes, however you want to characterize them, gets an average annual benefit of $160,000 a year, while working families making under $55,000 get an average annual benefit from these same provisions of $226, or $1 for every $800 that we're giving to the wealthy. I think this system is obscene. I think it's unfair. I think it's counterproductive. If instead we invested in everybody, and particularly in the folks that need the chance, as we've documented it over 40 years, I think the result would be that without spending a dollar more, we would get literally millions more businesses, jobs, homes owned, educations pursued. We would grow America. So how much damage do you think that the tax cuts that happened during the early Bush years, the tax cuts that happened this past year under Donald Trump, how badly have those handicapped our system? Well, I basically don't think that those tax cuts have been well invested. So I don't, frankly, see the $1.5 trillion we allocated last year in the tax reform really building entrepreneurship, homeownership, education for the masses. It gave more to the wealthy, both individuals and corporations, and missed, really, I think, the sweet spot. If you look in our history, as I do really in the last chapter of the book, at the kinds of economic policies that resulted in significant, long-lasting, widely shared increases in economic well-being, they were these kind of investments in the common genius, universal public education, the Homestead Acts, to which 25% of the population today can attribute their wealth, the creation of the 30-year mortgage by the federal government, backed by Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac, and other guarantee programs, which brought home ownership within the purview of the middle class. And maybe my favorite example, the GI Bill, where we said to returning World War II GIs, you saved our country. And in turn, we will provide you low interest or no interest business loans, home loans, college loans. Those GIs, in turn, drove our post-war growth. 
220,000 businesses, 5 million new homeowners, 9 million new college students. The GI Bill democratized college education in the U.S. Within a decade, it tripled the middle class and turned the income distribution from a pyramid to a diamond. I think what we need now is a new GI Bill, but one that doesn't have the dark side because there was a dark side to the GI Bill, which was the benefits went, by and large, to white men. It did not go to the 17 million women who were the arsenal of democracy. It was deliberately left in its administration to state and local officials, and still in the Southeast, governed by Jim Crow and de jure segregation. So African Americans in the South, returning GIs even, did not often get the benefits to which they were entitled. There was that kind of downside in the other investments in the the Homestead Act, so land we stole from Native Americans and denied, by and large, to people of color. It's for those historical reasons that people of color today own a few cents in assets or wealth for every dollar white zone. I think that hugely determines outcomes. We can't do much about the wealth inequality generated in the private sector, but we certainly shouldn't be subsidizing it. So what I would like to see is a GI Bill for the 21st century for everybody based on matched savings, which I can describe a little more, because we don't need more debt for homes, for businesses, for education and designed in such a way that we can close the racial wealth divide. And we're going to find out a lot more details about that as we speak with Robert Friedman, author of A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone, Today for Spirit in Action. But first, I'll remind you that this Northern Spirit Radio program, you can follow us on the web at northernspiritradio.org with all of our programs since 2005, and we've talked to an immense number of people doing wonderful work to improve this world, and certainly Bob is one of them, and all the folks at Prosperity Now. Prosperitynow.org is the website you can follow up best to track down the current work of Prosperity Now and Bob Friedman, or Robert Friedman. That's what it says on the book cover, at least. Also on our website, you can find links to everyone from the past years. You find the stations where we're broadcast. Lots more information. There's a comment button. Please comment on this program and suggest to us who we should be talking to, people who are making a difference, who are healing the world. Also, there's a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's not by government and it's not by the corporations. It's because you, the listener, want to see it continue. We need your help. Even more so, I want you to support your local community radio station. Local media, alternative media, is so very important. Systems get fixed and get blind to certain things outside their purview. Community radio acts as an antidote to that, both in terms of music and news. So please start by supporting them. And then go out and get a copy of the book, A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone, prosperitynow.org again is the website 
And there's a lot of threads that I want to follow in this. You're talking about the four eras, which uh, you mentioned, the four different big programs that were so fundamental to, I think, supporting economic democracy in the United States. I found that really valuable. And I, I was a little bit disappointed. You made me wait till the last chapter of the book to find it. But there was so much I learned in going through the first chapters and all the different kinds of programs and how those incentives can make a difference. There's a few fundamental assumptions of our society that I'd like to address before I nail down some more of the specifics of how you did your research and, and what kind of incentives do work. Number one, in 1980s, Reaganomics came into vogue and uh, trickle-down theory. Trickle-down theory became important. And you've mentioned already, you bottom-up is how economies grow and I assume that's as opposed to trickle-down, is the research, is the documentation unequivocal that bottom-up is how it works? Or could you make a good case? As a lawyer, you sometimes have to do that kind of thing, that trickle-down is beneficial. I don't want to be absolute about it. What I can say with confidence is that Again, if you look at universal the record on universal public education or the Homestead Acts or the creation of the 30-year mortgage or the GI Bill, there have been, again, long-lasting macroeconomic effects, which are also built on you know, the development of families and household economies uh, and come from common people. Um, I clearly think, you know, the federal investments in research and development, you know, the Internet <laughs> created by public research, I mean, those trickle down. You know, I do think some wealthy people are highly productive, but I think this notion that wealth creators uh, and job creators are only the wealthy is demonstrably not true. I do think the stereotypes of the poor and of people of color and immigrants are not true. Um, again, every time we've bet on the productive capacity of low-income people as entrepreneurs, as homeowners, as uh, college material and skilled workers, they have rewarded that faith, respect, and investment with great deal of productivity. I think of the Community Advantage Program, uh, Self-Help, which um, helped 52,000 low-income people making average $28,000 a year get homes with uh, low down payment uh, mortgage loans underwritten by the private sector. Um, all over the southeast. The default rate was no more on those loans than in the general population. Uh, so I think, you know, we need to begin to really figure that uh, low-income, even very poor people, will save, will start businesses, will buy and keep homes, will go to college given the support. We need to realize then money is an input as well as an output. It seems to me it's an insufficient goal. It is an essential starting condition. 
I wanted to talk about the role of expectation in terms ah, of helping develop this. And one of the things that I think you said from the left, there's low expectations from the right. There's even lower expectations. <laughs> Maybe that's not a, a fair way to say it, but I, I think that's the general concept I've seen. Um, I think I've observed people live down to expectations. Increased expectations, people strive a little bit harder until it's completely unrealistic, and then they say, I might as well give up, right? Because it's completely impossible what's being held up for me. I was interested in, you mentioned your first demonstration of how employment investment works. Uh, you mentioned, I think it's somebody else's program. I can't pull up the name right now, but uh, your system that you had advocated that you'd put into place had uh, some elements that I think from the other point of view looked as paternalistic. You have to be trained to do with your finances. We have to tell you oversee and in some ways uh, be vigilant about the mistakes you'll make as a poor person. Now, I don't think you intended them that way, but the other system, you, you know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure exactly, but I understand the point <laughs> that you're getting to. I mean, we in most of the community demonstrations, and again, what we try our model of change, our theory of change, is that we should try and identify in our history, in the practices of households, what works to move people forward economically. And then um, we should try and demonstrate that so that we can find out if it works and how it works best in partnership with communities and community organizations. And then if and when we know that it works, um, identify the policy barriers or tools that can help that development and ultimately the market changes. Again, our model is that we, I guess my fundamental belief is, in Van Jones's word, we're leaving genius on the table. What we want to do is enable people to play in this economy, to bring their dreams and talents and skills and work to the economy, which also means, you know, that the economy will grow because of that added productivity those ideas, uh, those innovations, that work effort. Uh, so it's a it's a win-win. Um, I do see, you know, money as a central, in the words of Michael Sheradden, powerful, independent variable, <laughs> if you will. We do, you know, the when we work in communities like with match savings programs, so-called individual development account programs, which one welfare mom described as, oh, I see what you mean, a 401k except for me, <laughs> um, a match savings program, we did include basic financial education and asset-specific financial education, home buyer education, uh, business planning as a supplement. But what we found is there's very little evidence in the literature that financial education without money makes much difference at all. Offered with <laughs> some money, it becomes a whole lot more relevant. So in the 
American Dream demonstration we did in the uh, 1990s with individual development accounts, these matched savings accounts or 401ks except for everyone, uh, we found that each hour of basic financial education or asset-specific financial education up to about six hours uh, increased monthly savings by a dollar to two dollars a week, I guess. Um, that may not sound like much, but it was an additional $300 a year. But, you know, people need to see, someone described uh, individual development accounts as hope in concrete form. I mean, money is a really good way of counting. It'll also, I think, to go back to your very good question, which I don't think I answered adequately, it goes to this expectation issue. So we have other research findings that poor kids with a college savings account in their own name are three times more likely to attend and four times more likely to complete college than their counterparts without a college savings account, even with less than $500 in the account. What that suggests to me is the money is important, but what may be even more important is the expectation <laughs> that you can go to college. If you expect to go to college, if your parents expect you to go to college, then you and they move heaven and earth to make that happen. In the same way, if we think uh, pejoratively and too small about the potential of low-income people, that becomes, I think, a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if we recognize as we did in these demonstrations, that low-income people have capacity that's greater than their opportunity in this economy, then we can begin to see the lift of those expectations. And a lot of experimentation has been done. Different programs attempted, and you got success rates. One of the things I found really interesting about your Universal savings accounts, generation accounts, matched business accounts, home accounts, prosperity accounts. What I found interesting about these is the support they get both left and right because they simply do make sense and they prove it. An element I hadn't been aware of before, but which makes complete sense to me is if our goal is to have a relatively level curve, that we don't have a vast disparity between rich and poor. Uh, right now, the graph is, is asymptotic, right? You know, you, right. <laughs> it's going way into the stratosphere for on the rich end. If we're trying to make opportunity universal, uh, that you have to put the incentives into the system that drive in that way. And so in a number of these savings programs, You've said, well, if your income's this low, then whatever amount you deposit will match it with two, three, four times as much money. But if you're rich and you put some money in, well, maybe we'll give you half of that. Talk about how that actually affects behavior and has it proven to achieve its objective? Again, a very good question. I guess the first point to make is... Almost all of the savings programs that I suggest are matched savings programs. There's one exception to that, which is part of the generation accounts or so-called child accounts. 
I mean, if we believe that every child is born equal or should be born equal, then um, there's a rationale for providing greater nest eggs um, to lower income kids. Again, as the research shows, if you tell me the assets or wealth of a family at the birth of a kid, I can pretty much project what the educational, occupational, income, health outcomes are of that kid 50 years hence. I mean, (laughs) assets really are that determinative. We are not the meritocratic society that I think we think we are and that we aspire to. I mean, one of the most chilling statistics for me is that an African-American with a college education can expect to be paid less than a white man with a high school education. Still, college expands opportunity and increases income expectations for people of color, but not as much as it does for whites. But other than that, it's a uh, match savings program. So if you don't save a dollar, you don't get anything. You don't have to save a dollar, um, but again, then you don't get anything for that. Um, What we found in the American Dream demonstration was that the very poorest of families, families living at half the poverty line, that was at the time $9,000 for a family of four, saved about the same amount and at two to four times the rate of much higher income families. They did that not because savings was easy, uh, not because it didn't involve sacrifice, but because it was the price of stability and it was the price of hope. Providing greater uh, matches, match rates at the low end, I, you know, in several of the count systems, I go from $3 to $1 for the poorest fifth of Americans to one to three dollars for the richest um, fifth uh, is to try and level the playing field. I'm not after absolute equality, but I do believe that some level of assets, at least ideally a few thousand dollars a year, should be possible for everyone, and we would do better for that. It also, this also goes to a, I mean, in a way, it's just, it's the same rationale we have for progressive tax rates. You know, that the rich should pay more, I would say, the rich should get less (laughs) from uh, the system of tax loopholes, which is the opposite of what happens today. Um, But the larger justice question, which you may be, better able to answer than I am is, what's our responsibility for the injustices of our past? You know, we weren't around (laughs) when there was slavery in the country. We weren't around when the uh, Homestead Act took land from Native Americans on top of genocide, (laughs) um, you know, and distributed it to white, largely white settlers. We weren't around for either the good or the bad parts, most of us anyway, (laughs) the the GI Bill. But we've inherited a society where people start at vastly different places. If we believe in the ideals of this country, 
which I do, <laughs> um, then I think we have at least the obligation to know our history and to know this history of wealth discrimination um, and to understand its effects and its uh, control of the future of the country. And if we want to achieve the ideals of justice and opportunity uh, to which we aspire, then I think we need to set in place a system of savings. Um, partly, you know, that's for the good of all families. It's also for the good of the nation. Uh, debt has been increasing for 30 years. The debt load of the poorest fifth of the population has quintupled, you know, multiplied five times in the last 20 years. I think we need to replace that ever-increasing debt with a foundation of savings and assets for families and for the country as a whole. I want to address some of the structures in the U.S. society that I think work against the kind of savings and investments, educational uh, direction that you're encouraging. One thing that you talk about is, you know, even the poorest people can save. Our system, and particularly advertisements and the whole mindset of expectations, wants to discourage people from saving. In fact, they want to do the opposite. A payday check cashing right. is, <laughs> that's a way of having negative savings, right? You've already Correct. indebted your next paycheck. Uh, there are some really powerful forces who want you to spend and take on more debt because, of course, they're getting money out of it. They get interest, they get your assets, they get your house back because you can't pay for your mortgage, etc. So you're stacked against some really powerful financial actors. Yes, but I would say <laughs> that um, this really is a win-win-win solution for almost everyone, or I would even say everyone. Um, again, I'm not raising tax rates on anybody. I would be reducing tax loopholes. You know, I wouldn't be spending a dollar more, but I would be spending it to invest in everybody and in the future rather than providing a windfall to people who have already been very lucky and done very well in part because of the system that we have. Uh, basically, I think we could all do better. Part of the reason for that, you identified yourself, the tax benefits for building wealth, for home, business, education, and other high-return investments is so skewed that really by evening things out, we would make 95%, 96-97% of people better off on an absolute dollar basis than they are under today's system. It's only the very richest, really probably the only the, the top 1%, that would end up paying more, and not because their rates um, were increased, but because their deductions were decreased. But even the wealthiest then live in a more hopeful society, in a society where uh, everybody has a chance and can bring, you know, their talents and productivity to the marketplace. 
It's also, it would be a more hopeful country. I think, you know, we have been divided and we have been led to think not highly <laughs> of our fellow Americans. I think that does a disservice to all of us, and I think we've done that at the price of giving up on our hopes and our ideals. We have uh, resolved that, well, maybe homeownership, to which still nine out of ten Americans aspire, is not really realistic when we stand at a 72.5% homeownership rate for whites and a 43% for African Americans, I don't think that's acceptable. You know, 120 years ago, only 10% of Americans owned their own homes. We created a system where that became, you know, homeownership became a legitimate um, aspiration of the middle class. We can do that again. We can structure the market so people can win. You know, we think of savings uh, in odd ways. We think of savings as buying more and getting a discount. I don't mean that kind of savings. You know, savings really is much more a structure than it is an individual behavior or skill or habit. It can be all of those things. And there are people who are amazing at being able to save money with very little, I uh, talk about in the book the story of Grace Capitello, who was a welfare mother, uh, saved in ingenious ways, uh, would go to Goodwill and reassemble the toys that her kids wanted. Um, she was able to amass $3,000 to send her daughter to college, at which point the Wisconsin state officials found out about her and uh, charged her with welfare fraud and denied her all benefits because she exceeded the $2,000 asset limitation. Again, I think that didn't serve her well. <laughs> it didn't serve uh, the economy of the state well. But most of us save in ways that are made easy for us. And for most of us, that's like the savings we do in 401k, or Social Security, you get a job, you sign up once, you may opt to have 3% of your weekly or biweekly paycheck um, deducted and put into a retirement account. The employer matches that one-to-one. -one. Uh, and then the uh, federal government and state government provide additional tax incentives most of us don't even notice that until a few months or a few years in when something has substantial has accumulated and then we take notice and then we uh, try and learn and, and invest well. What I really want to see is us create an infrastructure, a foundation for savings for all families that makes it easy to do the right thing that makes it easier to save for and invest in the future. Well, I want to mention one more thing before we have to go, and that is one of the things I found hopeful in A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone by Robert Friedman, one of the things I found very hopeful, Bob, was some of the states that were involved. Uh, one of them was Oklahoma, 
was involved in this. And I don't think of Oklahoma as a liberal-leaning state. And yet they did some of the best programs. Maine was another one that I noticed that in there that Maine is kind of in the middle, I think, in terms of politics, uh, that there were really great innovative and successful programs, whether it was for helping uh, the poor people, giving them exemptions so that they could do the savings or, uh, you know, the educational investment fund that gets created for a child from birth and so on. All of these ideas, they're possible everywhere in this nation. It's not only in Massachusetts, one of the most liberal states, that this could happen. Uh, They've been happening everywhere. And so You've actually given me some hope, Bob, by the examples that you were able to pull out in this book. And folks, there's a whole lot of detail. There's a whole lot of understanding that I've accumulated through reading this book. And so I hope you'll pick up a few thousand dollars for Robert Friedman. You'll inform yourself, and we can go forward together, everyone in this nation together, for the Commonwealth. I really think that you've given us information and a modality that'll get us there. So thank you for doing that work, Bob, and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Can I make just one other comment? We know how to do this. We know the community practice. We know the public policy. We know the market changes. We know that it works. We know from our history, we know from 40 years of really pretty rigorous exploration but it takes us back to a basic notion. I, my favorite Abraham Lincoln quote was from his 1863 message to Congress where he said, the highest calling of government is to improve the economic condition of people, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford everyone an equal start and a fair chance in the race of life. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Let's do that economically. Let's believe in, invest in the American dream for everyone. Well, thank you so much. And again, thank you for joining us for Spirit in Action. Mark, thank you so much. You'll find Robert Friedman and the rest of the crew at prosperitynow.org on their site. And there's a link to them, of course, on northernspiritradio.org. Great thanks to Catherine Thomas for production help on this program. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.